This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Charlie Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. Library branches are closing temporarily for meth cleanup. Another mass shooting in America has us looking toward Colorado's latest take on gun reform. And a litany of issues with the Aurora Police Department just keeps putting local law enforcement's alleged bad behavior in the spotlight. It's the Midweek News Roundup, and producer Paul Caroli and I are breaking it all down. Today is Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Hi, Paul. Good morning, Bree. So we're going to look at some big news stories happening here in Denver in the metro area. Uh, but before we get started, I, I think um, we need to we need to share a little note of clarification with our listeners um, related to our story from yesterday about the Park Hill Golf Course. Yes. Um, so, Bree, in yesterday's episode, you expressed some concern over the developers' intentions. Um, the developers, this is Westside Investment Partners, the owners of the land currently, the Park Hill Golf Course land. And I think you said something about how uh, if city council approved their rezoning request yesterday, then what's to stop them from turning around and selling the land or going back on their promises to build affordable housing? And I did mention in that episode the development agreement that Westside made with the city back at the end of last year, which committed them to maintain at least 100 acres of parks and open space and that at least 25% of any new housing built on the remaining acreage would be income restricted as affordable housing. Um, but what I didn't realize, and thanks to a listener in the planning department for reaching out and clarifying this, is that part of what city council was voting on last night was that development agreement. And the development agreement is binding to the land, not to West Side specifically. So if they sell the land, the new owner would still have to maintain those commitments. And also, there's another update that uh, we didn't know about. Um, this was sent in to us by another listener, Tom D., who's a resident of the Clayton neighborhood. He wrote in to tell us about a community benefits agreement that actually was finalized uh, between Westside and, I guess, the community yesterday, just hours before the vote. Um, he says he's also generally skeptical of developer promises like you, Brie. But there's this community benefits agreement has done a lot to assuage those fears. Um, and he sent in a copy of the executive summary. It's got a lot of interesting details here about things that the developers are, are promising to do. I mean, and one thing is to reserve space for a grocery store. They're not promising to contract one and lure one into the neighborhood, but they are retaining space for one for 10 years. Yeah, here's a quote from the executive summary. It says, developer shall make the parcel available at no cost to a full service grocery store for the time developer is committed to reserving the grocery store parcel. That's 10 years. That's good to know. Thank you, listener, for yeah. uh, for for sharing that information with us. Yeah. 
Um, of course, we're recording this Monday morning, so we don't know the results of the vote that have happened by the time you're hearing this. Um, we'll, uh, we'll update you later this week when we know. And then we've actually got another follow-up to a story that we brought listeners last week as well, but this one involves Taco Bell. Yes. We kind of joked about it on Friday. This gentleman found reported to find rat poison in his Taco Bell. Um, I, I think we sort of just brushed it off and we're like, ooh, I hope that guy's okay. But our friend Connor McCormick Cavanaugh at Westward did a little deep dive to find out what was going on here. Um, Paul, what actually happened at this Taco Bell involving this gentleman <laughs> and the Taco Bell staff? <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre is what happened. And also, I mean, this is all anyone in my life wanted to talk about this weekend is this Taco Bell story. It is so bizarre. And I think it was getting national headlines. Yes. I don't know if you saw that, but like- I did. I guess that it, it, it is kind of weird and quirky, but I didn't expect a story like this to really like blow up like that. Anyway, <laughs> what we learned thanks to Connor is basically a timeline of the events. So 1 p.m. January 15, the man in question gets in an argument in a drive-thru at the at Taco Bell in Centennial um, over a broken soda machine. According to the sheriff's department, quote, the customer became angry and requested a burrito in place of a drink. Initially, the employees told him they could not do that. He continued to argue with staff until he was given a burrito in place of the drink. Um, and at that time, deputies found that there was no criminal activity. It was just like, seems like an argument. Nobody called the cops or anything. Later that night, the sheriff's got a report from a local hospital about someone eating food from Taco Bell with rat poison in it. Um, so quoting from the sheriff's again, the customer told deputies he had received his tacos at Taco Bell and went home. He then helped a neighbor with some yard work and around 6 p.m. he sat down and watched a TV program from 6 to 7. The customer told deputies that he ate his tacos after the program finished, which six hours later, by the way. I mean... That detail to to leave Taco Bell out for six hours before eating it. I had Taco wow. Bell last Friday night, actually, after we talked about Taco Bell. Oh, yeah? You were in the mood? <laughs> no, actually, El I, I was going to go pick up uh, food to go from El Noa Noa for... Uh, friend of the show Kaylin Heffernan and I and then found out El Noa Noa was closed because they were they're like uh, re renovating their kitchen and I was like oh. oh okay Taco Bell it is but like we ate Taco Bell and then a couple hours later there was like a couple pieces of a couple pieces of food I don't know mm -hmm. I'm saying it like that um there there was a couple tacos we hadn't eaten we threw them in the trash they like you don't eat you don't eat Taco Bell six hours later but that's not that's not really the issue with this story I think the issue with this story here is like what a miserable human being you're going to pick on Taco Bell employees because their soda machine is broken and then force them to give you something for free. And then you're going to implicate them in trying to poison you. Like talk about miserable human being on this planet, man. Find a new hobby. I am sorry to those Taco Bell employees. Like I feel for them and I hope that they got to have a break or something. I don't know. So not cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while the employees have been vindicated, according to the sheriff's department, investigators have combed through video footage from inside the Taco Bell. They found no evidence of uh, anyone putting any rat poison in his food, but it's still an open question as to how it got in there between Ugh. him leaving at 1 p.m. and him eating it at 7 p.m. and then going to the hospital. Hmm. Still, still an open question. Ah. Did the man put rat poison in his own food and try to blame the Taco Bell people? I don't know. 
You know, this felt from the beginning, I it low-key felt to me like the hypodermic needle in the Pepsi can hysteria from the 80s or the 90s, like, or the uh, the Tylenol one in Chicago or, you know what I mean? It just felt like, I don't think that it is the the people that are serving you or giving are, are, are on behalf of the corporation giving you the product. I think it happened somewhere after that. Yeah. Just saying. Okay, well, glad we cleared that up. Thanks, mm-hmm. Connor, for for doing the deep dive. So we're we're actually getting into the news now. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a couple issues with uh, libraries finding um, methamphetamine residue in some of their public spaces in the library. Um, Paul, can you can you talk about what what's going on here? Yeah, this started back in late November, early December. Uh, a couple of incidents at the Boulder Library, um, the main branch, you know, the one with that beautiful bridge over the creek. Just a, mm-hmm. I love that library. But there were a couple of incidents of Boulder Library staff walking into people smoking in the bathrooms, um, which leads to December 20th. The main Boulder Library branch closed after air duct testing showed high levels of methamphetamine. So the library then shuts down and they start $100,000 worth of testing and remediation. Um, this news story prompts other libraries in the area, specifically uh, one in Littleton, the Bemis Public Library and the Englewood Public Library. Um, they run some tests. They find similar evidence of methamphetamine in the ducts, in the bathrooms. And so then this starts blowing up, like Denver area libraries find meth in the bathroom. What's happening? Littleton city manager, Jim Becklenberg, uh, gave this quote to Nine News. He says, the safety of our employees and library patrons is our first priority. According to our partners at Arapahoe County Public Health, health risks to the public are considered low, but we want to make sure our building is as safe as we can be before we reopen it. So that's that's how they're explaining the closures. I read last week that Pikes Peak Library District is also now doing testing. I don't think they're closing. They're going to they're going to remain open while they do testing, but it seems like an issue a lot of libraries in the area are having. They're they're taking note. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, what do you think about this one, Bree? I have a lot of thoughts about it, but um I'm thinking of the safety of uh the employees at the library as well as the safety of patrons. Um That would be my first priority for sure. But I did reach out to Lisa Rayville, executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, which is an organization that uh, connects directly with folks who use drugs every day. Um, A lot of her participants are folks who use meth. So um, I just asked her for sort of uh, their thoughts on this concern about meth in library spaces. And she said, quote, it seems very similar to some of the fentanyl madness that has been in the media. If the drug war had a communications director, she's doing a great job at getting misinformation out there. Uh, This is a reminder. (laughs) You cannot ingest drugs by touching them. They cannot be absorbed through your skin. You cannot ingest drugs simply by being in the same room when it is happening. And you cannot ingest drugs by being in a room where drug use happened. So uh, she recommends that folks visit StopTheClockColorado.org for more information, uh, support, and solutions on drug-related issues in our state. I just thought that was an important voice to hear from um, to sort of quell some folks' fear about what could possibly happen if you have maybe been in a a restroom where uh, someone may have been using drugs. So you're you're good. You're okay. I appreciate that the libraries are are closing out of precaution, um, but it's just a reminder that we're okay. We're safe. Yeah, I heard a similar line from uh, the Denver Public Library. I uh, reached out for a comment to see if this is an issue that they're dealing with. And uh, spokesperson Erica Martinez says, 
No, basically not an issue here in Denver. They do not test or plan on testing their buildings for methamphetamine. However, the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment, along with other city agencies and industrial hygiene and mitigation firms, are currently working on a proposal for assessment and more specific cleaning measures to address possible contamination um, in all city facilities, uh, including the library. So this is something I guess they're thinking about like in a broader way, but not specifically around the library. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Unfortunately, our next topic is something that happened over the weekend in California. Um, there was another mass shooting. This one at a Lunar New Year celebration. Ten folks have died so far. Ten folks are injured. That's what we know. But related to sort of this unfortunate ongoing conversation about mass shootings and gun reform, this is obviously something that Colorado deals with on a pretty regular basis as well. Where are lawmakers right now? What does this conversation look like around gun reform? Yeah, well, I think the conversations here started uh, after the Club Q shooting in November. So lawmakers that have been coming into the session that's going on right now have been talking about this for a few weeks. And there are a bunch of different proposals out there right now. Um, there's one group that's talking about an assault weapons ban. Um, that would be, I think, a bigger step. Then there's others talking about increasing the legal age for purchasing a shotgun or a rifle to 21. Um, maybe creating a waiting period between when someone buys a gun and when someone can access it. In terms of the leadership, like the, the people who are actually going to be making a lot of these decisions, the top Democrat in the Senate, Steve Fenberg, he says he would vote yes on an assault weapons ban, but it's not what he thinks should be the priority. Governor Jared Polis also not super interested in assault weapons ban. Instead, he says he's focused on strengthening the state's red flag law. According to the Colorado Sun, um, he also wants to create a policy around ghost guns and uh, and yeah, but the red flag law thing, I think that's interesting. I mean, that's something we've had in place since 2019 that allows um, law enforcement or people close to somebody to like tell a judge like, hey, I think this person maybe shouldn't have guns. So what they're talking about doing is expanding the the, the type of people, like how, how close you are to somebody to who allow- Who can report. Yeah, who can report and c call in one of these red flags. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see that definitely being a step if we think back to the uh, sort of South Broadway Lakewood shootings we had here 
um, over the Christmas holiday two years ago. Um, there was a lot of online evidence um, or or online there was there was an online uh, paper trail of of the shooter that maybe could have been useful in the in the red flag context. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be we'll be watching how that goes for sure. Yeah, and I think it's interesting this time. I mean, it's kind of up to the Democrats here. Republicans, I think, are pretty much opposed to most of these measures, but they have so little power in state government right now. It's going to be the Democrats deciding among themselves what they want to do. It'll be very telling for folks in the Democratic Party who lands who ends up where on, in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Here's something that I know, Bree, you you are really keen on this issue in particular. Um, Aurora Police Department has been back in the news lately. Mm. What's happening? What isn't happening? Unfortunately, yes, they are in the news for a lot of horrible things. Um, earlier this month, an off-duty Aurora police officer allegedly punched a disabled woman several times in the head and face as she walked her dog. Um, apparently, he was mad that she was walking in the street while he was trying to drive, and this somehow escalated into this alleged assault. Um, that same week, uh, the Aurora police officer, who was found passed out drunk in his patrol car in uniform four years ago, not only was not not fired at that time, or um, and he was not investigated for drunk driving, um, he was recently promoted. And I, I think that obviously rubbed a lot of folks the wrong way. I think it sets a weird precedence for where where cops land within our own justice system. Can I say something about that one? Yeah, absolutely. If it weren't for everything else I know about Aurora PD, and I don't know the circumstances of this particular guy's life, but it could be a really nice story. What do you mean? Like, man turns his life around. Nah. Gets promoted. No, sorry. Nope, you don't get that pass, bro. Sorry. I, I, I'm a recovering alcoholic, Paul. I'm sorry if I was found, if I if I was a police, if I chose that line of work, you have to understand there are standards set for you. You're supposed to be the the pinnacle of safety for your community. And I, again, I, I also believe in restorative justice and I believe in allowing folks to turn their lives around. Good for you, sir, for turning your life around. You should not be a cop anymore. I'm sorry. It's not. You've proven that you don't, you don't, um, you don't believe in the system that you supposedly enforce. So sorry to push back so hard, Paul, but I just no, don't. No, that's fair. I, I mean, it's so. fair. And, and like I said, the whole rest of the department, the lack of accountability, None of it. None of it feels right. Right. So that's the thing is it's part of this larger conversation. Also, one more thing happened within the last three weeks. Uh, the Aurora Police Department rehired the cop who threatened to release a police dog on Elijah McLean. Um, he was rehired on January 10th. And I just want to share a quote from Shanine McLean, who's Elijah's, Elijah's mother. Um, he's a Quote, he's an a-hole for taking on the slave mentality of telling a person of color they're going to be attacked by a police dog. So these are these are the three these are the three incidents that have happened within the Aurora Police Department in the last month that have just brought to light some other issues. I guess it's not brought to light. It is it is part of a long line of issues that uh, Aurora has had. Yeah, Bree, can you remind me and also listeners, how did we get here with the Aurora Police Department? Sure, sure. I think um, the Aurora Police Department has been in, in the national spotlight since 2019 when Aurora police officers and 
Um, paramedics violently restrained and sedated Elijah McLean, who was 23 at the time, and was stopped because someone reported him for looking, quote, sketchy. He was minding his own business, walking down the street. Um, after the uh, being subdued and injected with ketamine, he went into cardiac arrest and died several days later. Um, this has been an ongoing issue for Aurora um, and for, for, for the conversation around police safety, police reform in general. So that happened in uh, 2019. In January of 2020, interim police chief Vanessa Wilson was brought on. She was a veteran of the force. So the police chief that was in charge during Elijah's death uh, stepped down and retired. Um, Vanessa Wilson was brought on to take over. Um, anyways, Elijah's story was pushed back into the news after George Floyd. So in August of 2020, Wilson is officially voted in as police chief uh, unanimously by the city. Uh, September of that year, uh, Phil Weiser requires the department to enter this consent decree, which is basically like a department-wide reform from hiring and training to the culture of the police department. And it's kind of uh, Chief Wilson's job to to put this into, into play, into action. And as far as we know from reporting, it didn't go well. Like she was, she was kind of pushed back on quite a bit. Um, so she eventually is fired. Uh, less than two years after being made chief for, quote, not building morale within the department. So Wilson is fired. Uh, this interim police chief, Dan Oates, is brought in for a few months before the current interim chief who we have right now, uh, Art Acevedo, is hired to lead Aurora PD. Again, it doesn't it doesn't take reporters much time or digging to find out that Acevedo maybe is not the greatest choice for this role, even if he's just interim. Um, he was fired as the police chief of Miami. He was uh, he was found to be a frequent guest on Alex Jones's Infowars. Um, he had been accused of uh, sexually harassing a woman he was involved with. He has photos have been exposed of him posing with the Proud Boys. There's these other allegations of misconduct within previous police forces that he was working for um, and leading in Texas. And I think that's where it brings us today is Acevedo is the guy that's in charge when we see these last three incidents happen within Aurora. So... It's not good over there. And we'll we'll be watching to see to see what happens with Acevedo for sure. So that's where we are with the Aurora Police Department. Obviously, we're going to be continuing to watch that story. Um, but to end on a nice note, we are talking about tacos. Um, we've been researching the best tacos. We've been thinking about it. We've been asking you all for your taco recommendations. But Paul, I understand that you went on a little taco adventure this weekend. Uh, I sure did. I think the best place to start is a voicemail we got from a listener. Hello, CityCast. How are you? Matthew Harris gives me a call from the Cole neighborhood about tacos. Uh, I'm going to give you three. Two of them are run by the same person, Chef Jose Avia. And uh, his main restaurant is La Diabla. Uh, it's a pozole and mezcal restaurant downtown, but they typically do uh, street tacos, I think Wednesday through Sunday nights. It's mostly al pastor, pork tacos, right on the street, straight from the trombo, and uh, they are incredible and affordable and fun. Uh, and then Jose runs this thing out at, uh, well, he's got a farm where they raise sheep, and then out at the Rise Westwood, location uh every sunday they do sheep barbacoa tacos 
where they are cooking the full animal in an uh, underground pit. Well, I haven't had a chance to eat it because they sell out, like, within an hour. Lines are always long for it. But I bet it's really good. It looks good on Instagram. Um, well, first of all, Michael H., thanks for calling in. I love La Diabla. That is such a cool new restaurant downtown. I didn't know about this El Borrego Negro thing. Bree, had you heard of that? I had not. And this is right uh, in the neighborhood next to mine. So that was really cool to learn about. Oh, you're going to love this. It is so cool. This like wake up early on a Sunday. This past Sunday, it was kind of snowy. And so me and my wife went over there. We got there really early because like this guy apparently does sell out of this, this barbacoa that he cooks. And to stand in line in the snow out in the back of a parking lot and just wait for these like delicious gourmet tacos from this guy who's so committed that he's staying up all night cooking them. And Brie, you know, my relationship with meat has been changing. I mean, I was a vegetarian for a long time and I have been eating a little bit of meat and, you know, sometimes, I don't know. I don't, I, we don't have to get into that now, but I'll just say it was, it was an incredible food experience. One of the best meals I've had in Denver for a long time. It sounds amazing. I like can't wait to go try this. This is great. We're still looking for Taco Rex, though, right? Absolutely. I, I don't even know how we would consider this one, put it up head to head against others since it's like so specific. I <laughs> but I know. I think we should maybe just have a, but we could also just have a nice list of a, of, a, a couple other recommendations we make outside of our, our battle. That's like maybe some interesting experiences you could try. Because this sounds like a whole experience. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And if, if you're listening and you have a street taco recommendation for us, um, you can text or leave us a voicemail with your name, neighborhood, and your favorite taco at 720-500-5418. That number again is 720-500-5418. Please send us your taco recs. We are continuing this mission. I honestly can't wait. It's going to be so exciting to try a bunch of tacos. No complaints here. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me and helping me hash out the news. Yeah. See you tomorrow. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell your favorite Taco Bell cashier about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. It's the midweek news roundup and producer call <laughs> call Paroli. Good old call Paroli. I'm Dree Babies and this is